Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. A lot is going on in the news, isn't it? Um, first of all, some good news. We had two really, really important decisions out of federal court last Friday. One from the D.C. Circuit Court that held Donald Trump does not have absolute immunity against civil suits. And the other, even more important, from Judge Chutkin, who is the judge in Donald Trump's criminal trial set for March 4 on the D.C. charges against him arising from January 6. She, too, held that he enjoys no absolute immunity from prosecution because he was president at the time. There's no such thing as a get-out-of-jail card, she said. And boy, is that important, because that was probably his best chance not to avoid entirely prosecution, but to drag this out past next year's election. Not only because she had such a clear, well-reasoned decision, but because the appellate court also has weighed in on this. In all likelihood, he is headed for trial in March of 2024. And that is, as our dear president says, a big effing deal. That means that before voters go to the polls in 2024, November, they may well learn that Donald Trump is a convicted felon. And that, despite all the talk that nobody believes anything, his base will never leave him, Republicans have bought into this, actually will be perhaps determinative in the outcome because large numbers of voters, believe it or not, still don't want a felon in the White House. Imagine that. We still have some standards. So that is a very, very positive development. Meanwhile, the Gaza-Hamas war goes on, and not only does the agony of the Palestinians trapped in Gaza because of Hamas continue, but we are learning more and more, and thank God the media is covering more and more the horrors that went on in Israel and that happened to the hostages while they were in Gaza for many, many weeks the UN, human rights groups, much of the media has ignored the sexual violence that took place in Israel on October 7. Gruesome, manipulative, horrible incidents of violence, of really um, brutality, of torture to women, and repeated rape. It is finally getting some attention that it deserves. I've written about it. There's a magnificent piece in Slate on the issue. The UN on Monday is holding a hearing on the topic. And slowly we're getting more and more detail. It looks as though the evidence is being gathered. There will be prosecutions in Israel, and that's important. The other part of this that I want to talk about a little bit is the hostages themselves. Thank God over a hundred of them have been returned. But I have to say, the coverage has been disturbing in some respects. Too many people have said, look, they're in good condition. Oh, thank goodness they haven't been harmed. Oh, good. They're back with their families. Nice pictures. Don't they look great? Well, in fact, particularly if you read the English language media from Israel, you get a very sobering picture. 
These people, for all intents and purposes, were starved. Children were maimed. We don't know the fate of a number of women who have not been released. God knows what happened to them before or during their captivity. We have, of course, the phenomenon that children were separated from parents, parents separated from other loved ones. We know they were kept in darkness, that children were forced to watch videos of the monstrosities, the atrocities that took place on October 7. There is a word for this, and it is called torture. And this is a war crime. And I fervently hope that people who are so enamored of what they call the uprising, the martyrs, do not look away from the horror that has been perpetrated by Hamas. And we have to be honest, this is not something that many on the left want to talk about. It is not something that many who have adopted the Palestinian cause want to focus on. But it is a basic requirement for truth and for humanity that we recognize who has been harmed, who has been violated, regardless of religion, regardless of nationality. That's the basic definition of human rights, that these principles apply to everyone and protect everyone. And we should share our horror, our empathy with all victims. Switching gears a little bit, we did get rid of George Santos, didn't we? He finally went out the door. And the thing I'll miss most are the Saturday Live parodies of George Santos, which were really absolutely brilliant. But he's gone, thank goodness. Um, And the thing that gets me all excited is that there's going to be one less Republican in Congress, and that seat can very well be filled by a Democrat. And that means the margin for taking back the House is that much smaller. So hooray for some good news, right? And I also want to point out that the economy is still going strong, despite the gloom and doom, despite the polls, the economy really is very, very strong. So that's a positive note. So not easy times that we are in, I agree. But here and there, I got to say, the press is waking up a little bit. We're seeing more coverage of what a second Donald Trump term would look like. The New York Times is now running a whole series on what that dictatorship would look like. Atlantic Magazine, God bless them, is having an entire edition of their print magazine, which is also available online, devoted to what the horrors of a second Trump term would look like. So slowly, slowly, I think um, we're getting a greater awareness of what awaits us. And I hope that the American people have not tuned out and given up entirely. So that's the world in which we live. Hello, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. AI, algorithms, online hate, online anti-Semitism, deep fakes, we've all been bombarded with these terms, and we've all had these experiences. The explosion of violence that happened after the 2020 election, we know was spread through Facebook and other platforms. And it doesn't seem that anyone Congress, the companies, outside bodies are able to get their arms around these myriad of threats 
of problems of really debilitating impulses that are creating an angrier, more polarized, less trusting society. Because after all, after a while, you don't know what to believe. And that has been the playbook of dictators, totalitarians throughout history. If you can confuse people enough, if they don't know what they're seeing is truth or not, then they don't believe anything and your truth, your reality can prevail. But truth be told, there are people who really do understand this and who are important to listen to, who can explain these complex technological issues to people even like me, who my family likes to refer to as techno-gen. That is not a compliment, by the way. Um, and we're very fortunate to have such a person with us today, E.L. Eisenstadt. She began her career as a public servant in the Foreign Service and the CIA. She then had a stint at Facebook, created quite a stir there, led to a TED Talk that rattled, I think, the internet space and really brought the issues of algorithms, hate speech, polarization to the general public. She is now with the ADL and is immersed in all of the anti-Semitism, the deep fakes, all of the issues that have arisen during the Israel-Gaza war, and really before that as well. And as we know, anti-Semitism was on the rise before that. So without further ado, let's get into all of these naughty topics with E.L. Eisenstadt. Welcome to the show, E.L. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. It is my pleasure. You have certainly had a varied career in public service at Facebook as an advocate in the social media realm, uh, now at the ADL. Let me take you back to your migration, if you will, from public service to Facebook, which you talked about in that now very famous TED Talk. We'll put it in the show notes so people can reference that. What was your expectation, your goal, if you will, when you went from public service where you had dealt with polarization, extremism, and then you went to Facebook? What what were you looking to accomplish? So it was a bit of a... Um ride between leaving public service and agreeing to take the role at Facebook. But what really drew me to take the role was, you know, I left public service in 2013, towards the end of the year. And in 2015, I started writing about how all of these issues that I had worked on overseas, which really was the extremist threats, um, counter-extremism work in East Africa, sort of what you might call the hearts and minds type work, um, I was starting to see these very same extremist threats happening in the U.S., so I started really digging in to understand how was this happening. And I will go long story short, really started homing in on the role that social media was playing in exploiting our vulnerabilities to what I was calling radicalize us. Um, 
in the exact same ways that I had seen people being radicalized overseas well before social media even existed. As I started writing and speaking about it, um, started speaking at tech conferences, wrote a big piece in Time Magazine about these dangers, and then Facebook called. And so I went in, you know, I didn't go in with rose-colored glasses. I was very clear in the interview process with them not to hire me if they didn't mean it, that I was taking this role because I fundamentally believed that the company was playing an outsized role in the health of our democracy, in how political speech was evolving, and how election speech was evolving, in the polarizing, sort of tearing at the fabric of society. I never said it was all Facebook's fault, but I did say they were playing an outsized role. And to only hire me if they meant it, if they really understood that I wanted to dig into this and see how we could hopefully fix some of it. And just to put a timestamp on it, this was right after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. This was in 2018. And the final offer came to me from Facebook one minute after that famous Mark Zuckerberg hearing in front of the Senate ended. So I believed that they were taking the threat seriously. I had just listened to Mark Zuckerberg for five hours in front of the U.S. Senate claim that elections integrity was going to be this very serious issue for them. And I took the role, I would say, maybe cautiously optimistic that I might be able to help this company steer the course in a better direction. But I never went in thinking that I was going to single-handedly change the company or save democracy. And how long did you last there? (laughs) I lasted just less than six months. So clearly... um, the promises they made to me that I would be empowered to actually help lead this work were not accurate. So when you were at Facebook and you began to dig into things like the role that their algorithms have in promoting um, not only extremism, but hate speech and even violence, as you got into it, were they unaware of it? Or were they aware of it, but they simply couldn't see any alternative given the business model they had created, which is about engagement, about getting those eyeballs, about then slicing and dicing and narrow casting to people in order to pump up their value to advertisers? Was it ignorance or was it just kind of a sense of fatalism? That's what our business is. I would say it was neither ignorance nor fatalism. I would say these were absolutely business decisions. And um, so to be clear, when I worked there at the time, it, it was I wasn't yet really looking at the roles of amplification and algorithms to the degree that I have been in the last few years. But what I was looking at, um, you know, part of my role was about, I, I really worked on the political advertising side. And so it was to make sure that bad actors were not exploiting the platform to engage in election, whether it's misinformation, whether it was uh, somehow to manipulate elections. And what's interesting is there were two very basic things I tried to do there that they could have accomplished. And the fact that they chose to do neither, at least at the time, um, I would argue, just based on my time there, is absolutely a decision. Now, one of the decisions absolutely is about the business model. One of them, I would argue, is a political decision. 
the two things I tried to do when I was there, one was just to ask questions about why we were not engaging in basic fact-checking of political ads the way that they had the capabilities to do on the organic side of the house, meaning just everybody's regular Facebook feeds. And boy, did I start a firestorm just for asking that question. Um, and I had program managers and data scientists and, and other people at Facebook like prove that we could do this. And again, let's be very clear. Political advertising might not be the most important thing on the platform, but it is where Facebook actually makes money and actually provides targeting tools so that people can actually target political messages in a very specific way to, to specific users. So in my opinion, the bar should have been higher. And the second thing I was trying to do was build in a program along the lines of making sure voter suppression tactics were not happening. It was very basic. No lies about how to vote, where to vote, when to vote could be allowed in political ads ahead of the midterm elections. Both of those things uh, were denied at the time. And that was because it would have led to a diminution in the number and the value of those ads? It was because they had some great commitment to free speech? What was the rationale for dismissing this out of hand? So the rationale, which is not what I believe is the real reason. So in some of those email chains about the idea of uh, fact-checking for voter, I mean, again, it might not be considered voter suppression at large, but for lying about voting. Yes. Um, were what you always hear from a company like that. Oh, this doesn't scale globally, which I would argue back. You asked me to help protect the midterm election. This No one election policy is going to scale globally, but it will certainly protect the upcoming midterms. Um, it was never about capability. We had the capability. We put forth the whole plan that my team had built, so the capability was there. I would argue that doing so would have affected one candidate more than others because I would argue there was one candidate or party that was engaging in more violating content than others. I can't prove it, but it's the only rationale I can understand for why they were absolutely opposed to the idea. Now, let's be clear. I am not saying that Mark Zuckerberg wanted that candidate to win. What I am saying, though, is a decision was made not to, I think there was an article once that said not to poke the bear, yeah, not to enforce policies that would anger the party in power. So that is my assessment, but it's the only one that I can understand uh, for the reasoning why that went that way. And so... You were not included in a lot of meetings, I imagine, very quickly on, cut out, and so you left. And you began talking and writing, and then you did this TED Talk, which, as I recall, was the first time the average person could really learn what the issue and what the problem was. And you took what you had learned from the election space to a wider issue, which was the role of algorithms, the polarization, the hate speech, which really stems, it's organically the same thing, um, the same um, business model that would drive them to not regulate, to not screen out 
political ads is the same which drives them to have an algorithm that's going to maximize emotional connectivity, emotional connection, time on the platform, advertising dollars. When you gave that TED Talk, what was the reaction from the industry and from ordinary people? Because I think this was really kind of a groundbreaking thing. It broke out of the tech world into the general public. So yeah, what, thank you. What was interesting here is the talk was supposed to be, you know, in in Vancouver on the main stage and then COVID happened. Yes. So it got delayed and it ended up being a virtual talk. And the reason I bring that up is, so A, it was at a time where we were all online more, but um, it meant that the talk got delayed a bit. And when it came out, um, uh, it wasn't just that I was unpacking these companies' own roles and how their very own tools, which you just mentioned, were helping polarize people, were helping push people more and more to the extremes, all of the things you just said. But I also ended that talk, and this is probably what did not win me any favor with a company like Facebook, was specifically laying out how if nothing changes – And if Facebook does not take their responsibility to stop allowing election lies and manipulative content to flourish in the way they were, that not only would they be responsible for putting their fingers on the scale of elections, but I actually called out, we're marching down a path towards post-election violence because you are allowing this kind of rhetoric to not just live on the platform, but you're pushing it. You're pushing it through your own algorithms because of the emotional reaction, because of everything you just said, right? The the way social media thrives. And so, yes, I I don't have this um, in writing, but from multiple people, both within the company and journalists and others have let me know that the company was pretty angry. Um, I'm pretty sure that they probably called the head of TED Um, I know that internally, the talking point about how I was just trying to make a name for myself off off of a failed career, which is also interesting because I had a solid 16-year career before (laughs) going to Facebook. Um, So yeah, not so happy internally. And here's why that's so sad. If you listen to the talk, I actually talk about how many incredibly great people there are that work there and how passionate they are about doing the right thing. And I'm just talking about the business decisions at the top and the incentive structures. This could have been a learning moment internally for people to say, whoa, we should really look into this instead of she's a horrible person, ignore this. Because then when those Facebook papers were leaked by Francis Haugen a year or two later, was saying the exact same things that I had said in that talk. Externally, publicly, it, a lot of people really like said to it, said to me things like, I never understood this this well before. But yeah, in the company, my understanding is it was she doesn't know what she's talking about, which is, you know, a very obvious tech company thing. But again, the most important thing here was. I didn't do this talk. I wasn't selling a book. I wasn't selling right. a consulting practice. All I was trying to do was warn of what was coming and ask Mark Zuckerberg to make a different decision moving forward. And as we all saw, he did not make a different decision. How long after this did January 6th happen? 
So the talk came out in August, although the reason I brought up the timeline is it was written quite a bit before that. Right. And I'd actually gone on Bloomberg News before that, also spelling out exactly why I believe there would be post-election violence if social media continued to operate the way they were. So it came out in August, September, October, November, December, January. The post-election violence was five months later. There was enough time for Facebook to at least take things like stop the steal, then President Trump's rhetoric, calls to violence, all these things more seriously. And they didn't. That's fascinating. By such decisions, um, history is made and history turns. At the end of that TED Talk, and certainly subsequently, as I mentioned, you've testified before Congress in your new role at uh, ADL, you've done various reports, you have set out that it is possible to fix this. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you fix this? They always claim you can't fix this without driving us out of business. This is the end of the internet. This is the end of American dominance in uh, tech companies, blah, 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 blah. What are the things that tech companies could do? And what are the things that government, respecting the First Amendment, and you have been emphatic on that, can do to aid, cajole, or require them that would at least help address this problem? Maybe not solve it, but improve it and therefore benefit our democracy. So if I start going on and on, please interrupt me at any point, because this is a very big question. Um, So let's actually just start with the democracy election space, because there are many, many things that need to be fixed, quote unquote. Um, And so I think one of the things is identifying which problem you're trying to solve. So if we're talking about the democracy, elections, polarization, radicalization of people, uh, I think there are multiple things. There is, I want to be very clear, there is no one end-all-be-all solution. And social media in and of itself is not the only problem. Right. That said, that is often used to stifle us from doing anything about it. Right. So I would draw your attention to one report that my, that we put out um, with my team at ADL in partnership with the Tech Transparency Project. It came out in August. What we did in that report was actually try to prove I mean, I don't, it wasn't, this wasn't why, but whether or not what I was saying in the Ten Talk years earlier is accurate. What we were trying to prove is, are these companies' own algorithms, their own tools contributing to this situation? Or is it just passive speech from people that are flowing through these pipes and the companies themselves bear no responsibility? And the reason we wanted to dig into that was because that would change the calculation of whether or not these companies should be accountable or whether it's just the individuals who engage in this activity. And just to make clear, their talking point from forever has been, we're just a mirror. We just reflect. We are just a passive platform. This is just America as it is. Yes. And there are two major things to understand about those arguments. The we're just neutral pipes. We don't want to be the arbiters of truth. That is because as long as we believe that talking point, they can use 
this whole section to 30. I can get into it if you, that might get too wonky for this audience. If that's but the communications get... <laughs> code that essentially um, protects them from liability for things they put out on their platform. Correct. But the mirror to society to me is also a very interesting argument. That argument is saying we are just reflecting society back to you. Now that implies, which goes right to the report I was about to mention, that implies that anything that people do or see or engage with online, it's what they were looking for to begin with. And that it's not the company's fault. It is merely they're just showing you back to yourself. And in some cases, that is absolutely true. But our experiment, our report that we put out in August, it it starts with the title From Bad to Worse. It's a series of reports. We used a bunch of fake accounts that we set up as men, as women, as teenagers. And we we had them follow across multiple channels. It was Facebook, it was YouTube, it was Twitter X, and it was uh, Instagram. And we had them like look at a variety of content as we were setting them up, dabbling in some things that could lead you down a conspiracy path, but also following basic influencers or whatnot. And we looked at what happened, what the algorithms themselves did. And here's what's fascinating to me. Three of the four companies, their own tools started recommending more and more extreme anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and extreme content. So that to me flies in the face of the idea that that's what you were looking for. But what's even more interesting is that YouTube, which had historically had very serious problems in this, in this space, did not. And we didn't expect that. It was a really surprising result that YouTube's algorithm did not recommend more extreme or more anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And I say anti-Semitic conspiracy theories because most conspiracy theories have some grain of anti-Semitism in there. And the key takeaway here is it is possible to fix. Clearly, somehow, YouTube decided that they did not want their own algorithms recommending more and more extreme content, and they tweaked it. So the idea that it's not fixable to me is just absurd. The idea that it might not be incentivized economically or politically, to my earlier point, to fix it is a different question. So that's just to say that technically speaking, it is possible. And I will repeat what I've repeated a million times. I do not think that Mark Zuckerberg set out to put his finger on the scales of democracy or to polarize people or any of those things. However, in the face of so much evidence, both internally from his own researchers that was exposed through Haugen's leaks and through reports like what we've done and so many others, he cannot say he doesn't know this is happening. And therefore, it is a decision to not, and let's be very clear, an algorithm at the end of the day is programmed to begin with by a human being and they set the goal and the intention. So if I, if they set the goal for an algorithm to maximize time on the platform, the algorithm itself will figure out that extreme content is how to do so. So they're saying it's not our fault, it's the algorithm. No, no. They you created. set the intention to begin with. Right. And what they found out and what the algorithm reflects is anger, fear, and lies keep people more glued to the platform than truth 
nice things, moderation, attempts to conciliate, attempts to introduce people to other points of view. And so they became dependent upon this. So they could change that. Kudos to YouTube. They figured out how to do it. If now, they, I want to be clear. YouTube has other problems, but yes. at least they proved that the, this you is could fixable. Do this. Correct. So they can do it. Let's posit that they don't want to, that we've been talking about this now for years. He's testified. Members of Congress have raised this. All sorts of outside groups have raised this. They don't want to do it. What do you propose, um, and you've talked about this um, in part to Congress, we'll also get to the AI part of this, which mm-hmm. is even scarier, but put that off um, for a moment. What could or should government do to, um, if not require, at least highly incentivize companies to do this sort of protect work? So there's a number of things. I think part of the problem is even people within the space of trying to find these solutions within the tech policy community start to argue with each other. My idea is the most important idea. This piece of regulation is the most important. There is no one singular piece of regulation that suddenly fixes this situation. But there are a series of incremental steps and things that change the incentive structures. One sounds so basic, but is so important. And this is actually getting transparency legislation passed at the federal level and not just transparency for transparency's sake. Up until this moment, we continue to take these companies at their own word because there is no way to truly prove what is or what is not happening. And unless it is mandated by Congress that a certain kind of transparency reporting, that is auditable by third parties is required, then companies can continue to tell us whatever they want. Now, I think there's two things involved here. I believe personally that there are many things happening in these companies that would be absolutely detrimental to their public persona, which matters for things like advertisers or consumers leaving the platforms, that they would never want to actually be quantified and put out in the public space. So if you have to engage in transparency reporting, it's already an incentive structure to try to clean up some of the biggest problems. But secondly, it also really smart, good policy and legislation can only be crafted when you truly have the information upon which to create those policies. So those are two big pushes for why transparency legislation matters so much. And part of transparency would be to allow independent researchers access to this. You're not necessarily saying, we're going to give all of Facebook's information to Twitter and all of Twitter's information to other people. We're talking about developing a body of data so that we can check whether what they're saying about their company is true or not, and so that we can inform the public what's going on and inform policy makers. Yeah. So there's, to this day, that these companies operate in a black box that I think is unprecedented throughout history, right? Like we know in other industries, whether it's the tobacco industry or the oil and gas industry, whatever, have lied about their actual effects on the public. But we're at a point where it's not just that these companies can, if they want to, lie. It's that they're actually immunized. (laughs) So, like, there's no incentive to even share this information. So, yes, in a privacy-protecting way, obviously, I'm not saying just open everything up to the 
public. You have to preserve people's privacy. I mean, if people are really interested, one good example of a bill that I think is worth really looking at is the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, PATA. It's gone through multiple iterations, but it's a good bill uh, that could probably be improved in certain ways, but it's a good start. So the first bucket to me is really transparency. And then the funny thing is there's some real basic things that we can't even seem to get past. So then you can argue that the problem here is also Congress. But the fact that even the most basic rules, and yes, some people will say that is all yesterday, but now we're talking about AI. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you shouldn't still fix the problems of yesterday as well. We don't even have basic rules for how political advertising should happen in the digital world. We have these laws and we have these laws for television, for print. Somehow social media platforms have no, and I will say this, if we had basic laws, I know at some point there was Honest Ads Act, for example, was one example that just never made it through. It would, I do believe that some of the things that I was trying to do while I was there in terms of political advertising, because there was no actual legal requirements nobody was going to move forward with doing things. Legal requirements does actually put in guardrails that sometimes companies actually want so that they don't have to make those decisions. And then, I mean, yes, I think that there's other issues like federal data privacy. We actually have no laws regulating our own privacy online, which underpins the entire business model you and I spoke about, how our data is used. And of course, I am going to continue to argue that there is no accountability. Um, That goes to the Section 230 conversation, which I don't think we get rid of, but I do think we can update to differentiate between what is just speech passing through neutral pipes and what is a company's own tools that are actually contributing to the problem and how do we differentiate between those. Let's move on then to AI. Um, Suddenly in the last, I don't know, two or three months, it's like the White House and Congress have discovered AI might be a problem. Um, You testified um, before Congress about some of the issues and some of the recommendations. Uh, We'll put that testimony also in the show notes. But tell the audience um, in large part what the AI threat online is about and what are a few practical things that Congress could or should be doing. Sure. So, you know, (laughs) I think part of the reason this conversation has exploded in recent months is because of just like when ChatGPT went mainstream, it suddenly woke people up to generative AI and what that looks like. But issues of artificial intelligence have existed for years, and there have been many people who have been calling out, and I'll just be very clear, mostly women and often women of color who have been calling out some of the very uh, potential risks and harms of an artificial intelligence uh, landscape with no guardrails in place. That said, I want to, for the sake of this conversation, divide it into two things. So when I spoke, so I spoke at Senator Schumer's AI Insight Forum, which was, you know, 14 senators showed up. You had industry and people like me side by side. 
um, there's artificial intelligence. I looked at two things, artificial intelligence systems that are actually engaging in, for example, content moderation. This is not a new thing. Like artificial intelligence in terms of content moderation, in terms of AI systems actually deciding what it's going to amplify, what it's not. These are problems that have long needed fixes, which you and I already discussed. And then there's the scary new thing everyone's discovering, which is generative artificial intelligence. And for the sake of the listener, I'll talk about things like uh, synthetic audio and media, meaning like deep fakes or artificially generated media. Um, and of course, everyone knows things like ChatGPT. So one of my biggest concerns about, first and foremost, I actually really want to applaud. Yes, the White House can't actually regulate the future of this, but the efforts to at least start to wrap their arms around and to put out guidelines and guardrails is, I think, a really huge task that I don't think is getting enough credit. Right. Um, And I think, but it doesn't mean that I believe, therefore, industry should just be, that, that we get into the same process that we have for the last 10 years where we just take industry at their word and they say we're safe and we're protecting everyone and we believe them. So for generative artificial intelligence tools, particularly things like synthetic audio and media, it's not enough. I'll give you a very concrete example, actually. So it'll help your listeners fully understand this. It's the same example I gave um, at the Senate uh, forum. One of the big things people are talking about is watermarking, which means if it's a artificially generated image, it'll be watermarked so that people know this was generated by artificial intelligence. Sure, that sounds great. It also puts a lot of burden on the average user to be able to investigate every single thing they see online. But sure, that's that's a good step. But when I hear industry, which they did in front in the Senate forum, tout how they are watermarking and that they're all working on watermarking as the solution, I had to bring up the example and the Adobe person was on the hearing with me, the hearing's not the right word, the forum. Just that very same morning, it had been exposed that artificially generated stock photos were being sold on Adobe about Gaza. These were not real images. These were not real images in Gaza of the unfolding war going on. They were artificially generated. And sure, Adobe watermarked those photos. But what happened? Once those photos were sold through their stock photos and started circulating online, it doesn't matter. They became not only part of the narrative, but then the other AI systems, the algorithms and the recommendation system started flooding those photos across the internet. And so not only did that not solve the problem of fake images changing the conversation about the war in Gaza, but it also introduces even more doubt into anybody trying to make sense of what was happening in Israel and Gaza. So to the point where nobody even believes anything anymore. And that is one of my biggest fears. Yes. When we get to the point that nobody believes anything anymore, that plays into the hands of the bad actors and the people who are intentionally trying to sow disinformation. And that is right out of the playbook of dictators. If you're 100%. not necessarily going to believe them, they'll rather have you believe no one, trust mm-hmm. no one. And so you give up your hands, you give up agency, you give up your own 
sense of judgment. So if watermarking is not the end all and be all, or maybe is um, kind of a a fake um, solution, what are some of the things that could be done to identify and to also, frankly, educate people who are the end users? We haven't talked too much about that, which is part of this global, I think, solution. Absolutely. This is not going to be the most satisfactory answer, but first and foremost, it has to be a whole of society approach. So on the one hand, Congress has to decide what the basic guardrails are. Companies have to abide by, like you hear a lot of things about, for example, red teaming. What does that mean? That means that a company is committing to actually testing out their products for all the different ways that they can go wrong. I'm not so sure if it is, like there should actually be requirements to do so before putting something out in the world, which exists in every other industry. Let's be very clear. The food industry is not allowed to start selling products without what? FDA approval. They're they're, they're testing. and, And by the way, Congress does not need to be, no senator or congressperson needs to be a nutritional scientist. I say that for a reason. They need to put in the guardrails. They don't have to be the ones who actually can do the scientific experiments to make sure the food is safe. The same thing should go here because people like to say Congress is too stupid to understand technology. Congress themselves do not. It would be great if there would be more tech skills on the Hill, but they don't need to be the ones who can actually prove in every scientific way, whether or not this tech is going to harm society. They should be the ones, though, who can say, here are the guardrails. This is the testing that has to happen before you unleash this product on the world, which, of course, tech industry will say stifles innovation. I believe there is a way to find a middle ground here. So sorry, now I'm getting really wonky. So there's the what are the guardrails in terms of testing, in terms of safety, in terms of red teaming, in terms of how you deploy these things, how you're using people's data in these types of tools, all of that. Then there's the industry's responsibility to do those things, to test, to incorporate civil society in all of this. There's also how do we educate the consumer to be smarter consumers of online information? And that's like, there's the upstream problem and the downstream problem. And the problem is you brought this up earlier in our conversation. This predates social media. Lies spread faster than truth. Salacious content is always going to win over. Like who wants to, who wants to watch the boring, wonky CDC explanation of a vaccine if you can see somebody give a much flashier, more interesting, very scary talking point about the vaccine? So educating the public on not just how to consume online content, but my thing I always try to do is to explain people how nobody wants to be told they were wrong, right? but people do react when they realize they're being manipulated. So understanding how content spreads, why you're getting an emotional reaction to something you're seeing online, what it means when you're getting an emotional reaction. Yes, how to fact check, how to verify. But at the end of the day, I want to be very clear. That is incredibly important, but it does not absolve Congress or industry from figuring this out because putting the burden on the user to understand how these machines that are far more powerful than they are, are serving and feeding them content, I think is an unfair burden on the average consumer of information. And we don't do that in other fields. We ask consumers to be health conscious, 
but we then require the labels on cigarettes. We then require the food content to be put out. In some cities, they require calorie content so people can be more healthful consumers of food. So none of these are to the exclusion of other things. Correct. Um, Let me bring the conversation in our final minutes kind of back to um, your current position at ADL. You mentioned that most of these conspiracy theories, a lot of the polarization connects back to the problem that we now see of endemic widespread anti-Semitism, which, to be clear, was plainly on the rise, alarmingly so, before the current war. Mm -hmm. The current war, the Gaza-Hamas war, it's exploded in all kinds of different ways. But clearly it was on the increase before, and clearly social media was part of that. Talk a little bit about how what we've just been talking about ties into the problem of combating hate speech, combating online uh, anti-Semitism, and how these two things kind of come together because of the nature of anti-Semitism, which is at bottom the ultimate conspiracy theory, the all-encompassing conspiracy theory that you find at the bottom of a lot of these smaller conspiracy theories. Yeah. So, you know, people like to say, like, you just don't like, like, big deal, things hurt your feelings. It's just words. Hate speech, and you've heard ADL say this multiple times, hate speech is the price of free speech. There's no question about that. However, the normalization of anti-Semitism, racism, hate speech The normalization through whether it's certain political elites or whether it's certain cable news networks or whether it is how social media algorithms themselves are mainstreaming hate speech, conspiracy theories, extremist content, all of that is serving up to a really dangerous environment. To your point, I'll give you two or three quick examples that predate October 7th and why this matters so much. If you look at any of the mass shooters or some of the mass shooters in the United States over the years, if you look at Pittsburgh, Poway, Buffalo, Club Q, every one of those mass shooters were fed a steady stream of conspiracy theories and largely anti-Semitic conspiracy theories online before they committed those atrocities. I am not saying that I know for a fact if they had not been fed these things online that they wouldn't have, like, there's no way to prove the counterpoint. Right. But that is absolutely proven that every one of them were fed this steady diet. And again, there's a difference between going online and looking for this stuff which like if you choose to go onto the most fringe platform and specifically seek this out, while I still think that is terrible, that is different than when you're on a mainstream platform and it's being fed to you, even if it's not exactly what you were looking for, which goes back to the report I mentioned in August. So you have actual like real shooters and in America, who we know were fed this diet online. You know, the ADL has been tracking anti-Semitic incidents in the offline real world. I would not say the offline is the only real world. I think online is the real world these days too. 
And it before October 7th, to your point, was at the highest it had been in over four decades. And it does correspond with more and more mainstreaming of anti-Semitism and hate on mainstream platforms. And my team has done so much work, and so is the Center of Extremism on ADL, showing and documenting this for years. I mean, I could point to piece after piece of where we show, I mean, we even have a piece about Twitter pre-Elon Musk last year, or I guess at this point it's the year before, showing that Twitter was not enforcing their own rules against hate speech and anti-Semitism. This is not new. Um, but it is becoming more and more mainstream on especially certain platforms and that it's clearly having real world consequences. Now, if you go to October 7th, let's go back to the AI generative AI conversation to see the discourse of people, not just saying I support Palestinians or I, I, I want to see fire in Gaza. All that is fair game and really important speech. But to see some of these same people actually saying they don't believe any of these things even happened. The Israeli government killed the Jews or no women were actually raped by Hamas or look at these hostages. Their hair is all done. They were clearly treated incredibly well. All of that goes to my point of nobody even knows what to believe anymore. Because if you can watch the videos from Hamas fighters own body cam of the things they did to people and still believe the talking point that it didn't even happen, that's where this entire online world has taken an incredibly terrifying turn. And I I have to be honest, I, there are days where I'm not sure I see the end in sight for this. What we are seeing, regardless of your political beliefs, What we are seeing in the online world of how the narratives are taking shape and proliferating about what happened on October 7th is absolutely terrifying for the future of how we believe anything online. Wow. Well, Sorry, this that is, was a little dark, but... <laughs> yes, that is heady stuff. And unlike some programs, I don't insist upon people leaving our audience with a bright, shiny light. Sometimes it's dark and sometimes it's important. But I think what we can say, Al, is it's incredibly valuable for people like you who have been on the inside to speak freely and openly and for Congress, for the American people to listen. Because ultimately, we get the government, we get the media, we get the society we ask for. And taking agency away from people, throwing up our hands, putting our fingers in our ears and humming is not the way to preserve a sane, decent, humane, democratic society. So thank you for coming on. We applaud your work. We hope going forward, um, whatever space you're operating in, um, I'm sure will be improved, whether it's before Congress, whether it's before the people, whether it's in whatever you're doing. Thank you and thank you for your work. And um, maybe we'll have you back um, six months or a year from now and you can tell us how things have improved or not, as the case may be. I hope hope it's how things improve. Thank you so much. It was a really important conversation. And I'll just leave you with this. If I didn't think there was a way to improve this, I wouldn't keep fighting. So thank you for the conversation. My pleasure.
And that was Yale Eisenstadt. Wow. Kind of mind-blowing and sober. And I think the takeaways that I get from her are, first of all, these are not insoluble problems. It's not so complicated. It's not so entangled in technology that these problems are insoluble. To the contrary, we now have the tools that we can screen out hate speech. We can look for efforts to suppress the vote, for misinformation and disinformation, for calls to violence. There are tools available to us in large part because these technology companies are very creative, are very innovative, and they should be applauded for their development. But what we have lacked so far, I think, is a political will to really wrestle with these issues and to take back the internet space. The internet space doesn't belong to internet companies. Our democracy doesn't belong to internet companies. We, the American people, control our democracy and have a say in what kind of media we want to get, in what kind of democracy we deserve. And it depends upon ordinary citizens and their representatives' willingness to get involved and to roll up their sleeves and deal with these issues. And so as we head slowly into the 2024 election season, I certainly hope that this issue becomes one that is talked about. Obviously, one side, as Yale said, no kidding, the MAGA movement benefits from disinformation, from radicalization. In fact, that's kind of their game plan. But that doesn't mean the rest of us have to buy into it. And I certainly hope that Democrats, as well as Republicans of goodwill, the Liz Cheney's of the world, the Adam Kinzinger's of the world, focus the public on this issue because it goes part and parcel with the brave new world that Donald Trump wants us to live in. If he is able to once again manipulate, deceive his way into the White House, if he is able to stir violence in another election, we may not have future elections. It's that serious. Our democracy is on the ballot. And so I hope in the year ahead, we're going to try to get involved in this issue more. We're going to try to get people like Yale to come on the show and explain this to us. But I implore all of you, first of all, to be more selective in your online viewing and watching. No one needs to be on except for people who make their living doing it for hours upon hours. Find those people who are reliable sources of information, whose information can be verified, fact-checked. Follow those. Don't share the most absurd, wildest thing you see on social media because it may not be real. It may not be true. Caution your kids. Put some guardrails around yourself, your family, your friends, and get back to basic democratic activity. Instead of standing on the internet all day long, go volunteer for a campaign. Go get a subscription to a real newspaper, a real news magazine. And do your part in taking back our democracy and controlling what we see, what we hear, what we share. So if you liked this program, please tell your friends. They can listen and follow Jen Rubin's Green Room on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.